Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. So I had a conversation this week about, of all things, filing taxes, and it really got me thinking about the way we talk about women and work. And you're probably asking, so how is a conversation about taxes relevant to women's workforce contributions? I'm glad you asked. See, even with women representing half of the workforce, we still have some work to do in calling out the subtle and overt ways we talk about women's contributions in the workforce, because that language can either serve to challenge biased attitudes or to reinforce biases. And as I was thinking about this and talking about it with other warriors in my tribe, I thought, you know what? We need to talk about this on the Advancing Women podcast. So I want to talk today about the way we talk about women and work, especially the subtle ways, because too often we just aren't having a complete conversation as it relates to women's work and this idea of expectation and even choice when it comes to work. We don't often enough think about the full complexity of the discussion. And the conversation I had about filing taxes is a good example. I was talking to a good friend last week and the conversation moved to taxes. It's April. Everyone's pulling together their tax forms. And so that can be a reflective time because we see on paper things like earnings, increases in our salary. We're able to see that for ourselves and for our significant others if we file jointly. And this particular friend is married and joint files with her spouse, and she has a full-time job. But she also does freelance work. And this past year was, for all intents and purposes, a very good year for her financially. In addition to her full-time work and that salary, she was commissioned to create artwork for several books. She's an illustrator. And so she was paid well to do so. And this added to her income. So far, so good, right? But here's the thing. She co-files, as most married people do, with her spouse. So when they do taxes, they're looking at their combined income. Now, it's important to note here that her spouse makes more than she does. And he's gotten bonuses in the past that have added to the income. But even with the additional revenue she brought in with the freelance work, it was less than her husband's overall work income for the year. And that's an important point because even though her income was greater, it was still less than her husband's. And yet when they met with their accountant, the accountant referred to her additional earnings with the words, this is an additional tax burden. The extra freelance were created a tax burden. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but it is a microcosm of well-entrenched attitudes about women, work, and our contributions. Because this extra money, this additional revenue did put them into a higher tax bracket, but why is the extra money she has made articulated as the reason, as the quote-unquote burden? Isolating a woman's increased earnings and then going on to refer to that as an increased tax burden is both telling and troubling in my estimation for a number of reasons. Why not look at the whole of their combined income and talk about the overall tax burden? 
This may seem like semantics or a small thing, but it isn't. Because again, I would argue it speaks to how culturally we tend to feel about women work and our contributions, as though it is a choice or extra when women work versus required or essential. We too often culturally see women's workforce contributions as a nice to have, as an extra, or as a choice. Is it really worth it for you to work? You hear this question asked to women often. You've probably heard some version of it yourself. And it's this logic of, well, by the time you pay for childcare and then gas and the wear and tear on your car to get to and from your job, and then you have to buy work clothes and things like that, is it even really worth it for you to work? And nobody would ever say this to a man. Nobody says to a man, is it worth it for you to work? But women hear it often. And honestly, it's a bit ridiculous and it is problematic. And I'm not suggesting that it's a problem to stay at home. And if you're able to do that and that's a decision you make, that's great. But it's really important that we're having a very true and honest conversation. So let's start with the misnomer that women and work is a choice. Work outside of the home is essential to women's economic security and our social equality and in creating a robust and sustainable economy. All of the research shows the importance of women's contributions. According to the 2023 Current Population Survey and employment statistics from the Bureau of Labor Statistics under the U.S. Department of Labor, three-quarters of what they call prime-aged women, and that's women mid-20s to mid-50s, those are considered the prime work years. So three-quarters of so-called prime-aged women work outside the home today, compared with slightly more than two-thirds just just a decade ago. Women are also working longer hours. Today, 84% of employed prime-aged workers work full-time. And these numbers are despite the coronavirus pandemic's disproportionate negative impact on women's employment. But the storyline of women choosing not to work has inundated our culture for decades, and it persists despite the fact that for most women, work is economically essential. Our contributions matter in our families. It's not appropriate to still be talking about, is it worth it and the additional cost for women to work and that quote-unquote tax burden that I mentioned. The thinking, though, is well entrenched in our culture. You can see how it happens. There was a controversial book that came out in the late 90s by Danielle Crittenden, and she's the founder of Women's Quarterly, and it was called What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, Why Happiness Eludes the Modern Woman. And in this book, she said this, quote, we want the warm body next to us on the sofa in the evenings. We want the noise and embrace of family around us. We want at the end of our lives to look back and see that what we have done amounts to more than a pile of pay stubs, that we have loved and been loved and brought into this world life that will outlast us, end quote. And look, I'm not saying that we don't care about those things and want those things, but this idea that it's either or is only about women. Men are able to have a warm body next to them on the sofa in the evenings and the noise and the joy of family all around us and still work without it just being considered a trade-off for a pile of pay stubs. And this way of thinking really came to a head in the early 2000s with a seminal article that prompted a lot of debate on the topic that has even continued today. So in 2003, the New York Times Magazine published an article titled The Opt-Out Revolution by Lisa Belkin, and it really added fuel to the debate about women in the workforce. 
This article is often pointed to and seen as kind of spearheading the dialogue and the conversation surrounding women's decisions to stay or exit the workforce and the whole dialogue of choice, the choice narrative. And the cover of the article featured the title, The Opt-Out Revolution. And then underneath the title was this banner, Why Don't More Women Get to the Top? They Choose Not To. And in this article, Belkin shared stories about herself and eight other Princeton graduates who chose to no longer work full-time after marriage and children. Belkin concluded that women were just too smart to believe that ladder climbing counted as real success. She suggested that well-educated women were fleeing their careers and choosing instead to stay home with their babies. And this is a storyline that has been touted for decades and still persists. And sometimes it persists overtly, and other times it's more subtly implied, this idea of work as a choice. And in the article, Belkin referred to what she called the shift from a revolution to get women equitably into the workforce in favor of a new kind of revolution. She ended the article suggesting that this movement is, quote, not a failure of the revolution, but the start of a new one, end quote. And she goes on to say that women like her and those in her article could, quote, usher in a new environment for all of us, end quote. And there's that privilege, the idea that all of us, as Belkin put it, have this choice. She fails to see the issue of socioeconomic status and this antiquated idea that most women can choose to stay home when in reality, most women, especially mothers with families and extra mouths to feed and kids to think about college and other things, have to work to make ends meet, even if they're married and their partner works. Yet there's this disproportionate reaction in the media where they rally around this idea of women choosing not to work and somehow that's what's going on. And that's why women aren't advancing because they're taking the time off because it's just not as important. They're just not as ambitious and so forth. And this is a decision that only an elite group of women have been able to really consider. And it's held up as some ideal or even a legitimate option for all women or most women. And it's absurd. The option to not work is not really financially viable for very many women. And that's just the truth. So when I hear of the tax burden of the extra work, it troubles me because it feels to me like a modern day recycling of an old fashioned perspective that is no longer relevant, but seems to constantly resurface again and again. And I was thinking about that question of the tax burden, as though my friend was perhaps supposed to think about whether she should or shouldn't do the extra work. And what's interesting about the extra work is it was really work that pursues her deep passion, that allows her to stretch beyond what she's doing in her day job and do extraordinary things that she's really excited about. So the idea that this is somehow creating a burden or that maybe this extra work isn't worthwhile is so frustrating because it doesn't take all of those other factors into account. Aside from the economic aspects, this type of language can be Jedi mind tricking women to see work as something they'd rather not engage in, that we're lucky if we don't quote unquote have to work. 
But here's the thing. It's not just about whether you have to work. Work is more than just paying the bills. It's far more than a pile of pay stubs. Research shows overwhelmingly that working full-time gives you a bigger sense of purpose and personal fulfillment. Having a life of our own and enjoying it on our own terms is very important for every individual. Working women have a life beyond their family and kids, and there's nothing wrong with that, just like men do. Having a sense of self-accomplishment and a fulfillment outside of your family is not something that women should have to apologize for or counter to our nature. The reality is that the work we do outside the home is often less stressful than the work in the home, which is so often underappreciated and even unnoticed. A recent Penn State University study found that people, especially women, are happier at their workplace than in their home. And one of the explanations for why this might be is that they found that women are less stressed at work as compared to home. And this isn't just a self-report. This was a physiological study. Over 100 people participated in a one-week-long study, and samples of the cortisone levels, which is your stress hormones, were taken and analyzed, and the findings differed by gender. Men were found to be happier at home in contrast to women who were found to be happier at work. And this is partially all of the social norms and societal expectations that pigeonhole men as breadwinner and women as homemaker in ways that leave both feeling less satisfied, less involved in all aspects of their life. So there's a lot going on here. But the point I'm making is this. Women's contributions are much more than a pile of pay stubs or an additional tax burden. If we're going to make choices about work, we should make sure that we're making that choice with all the information and that we do understand what we're giving up, if we're even able to make that choice. In a previous episode I did early on in the Advancing Women podcast, it was titled The Deals We Make, and I'll include a link to that episode. I talked about how women are doing the very hard work all the things to put themselves in the position for advancement in the workplace. And yet we know from the research that women continue to be the person in a partnership who is expected to subordinate their career to their spouse. And that often leads to either slow tracking or even exiting the workforce prior to reaching those top roles that they've prepared and had ambition for. Women are often the ones expected to be the caregivers, the supporters, the nurturers, and the sacrificers. And so the seemingly innocuous conversation about the extra money as a burden or isolating her income as the issue or the burden reminds me of the totally inequitable way we so often weigh women's workforce contributions versus their contributions at home. And if we want to talk about creating more equitable homes, so women don't feel the stress of taking on the lion's share of home and childcare responsibility and working, fine, let's talk about that. Yes, let's fix that. But the isolating of women's earnings, that language around that is important to consider too. When we isolate women's income as a tax burden, or we just look closely at that and decide what we should do or not do based on that number, rather than looking at the whole of a couple's income, it minimizes the importance of the work and the desirability of working from women's perspectives, especially ambitious women. And this is true for couples who do have the option of one parent staying home while the other works. We need the conversation to be about both people's contributions 
To have gender equality, we need to have the conversation about the way we talk about women and work and the long-term consequences of the choices we make. It's very similar to thinking about and isolating women's salary when you're considering whether a woman should go to work and what that would mean in terms of childcare. And you hear this conversation all the time, and it usually looks something like this. There's a couple that are married and they're considering adding children. And what's that going to look like for them when the children are young? So they look at the numbers and what will happen is they'll look at the woman's salary that she's making working. And let's say she makes $50,000 a year in her job and her partner makes $70,000 and they decide they're going to have a baby. Too often, the practice the process and the language moves towards immediately assigning the cost of childcare to the woman's salary. So if the full-time nanny is $30,000, they use figures like this. After taxes, if I'm making $50,000, I'll likely bring home around $35,000. And that's just enough to pay the nanny. And with gas prices to drive, I might as well stay home. And here it is again, the consequence of her work without consideration of his. But let's just interrupt that pattern for a second. Why is the cost of childcare considered strictly within the context of only the woman's salary? Why is my friend's extra salary the tax burden when her husband makes more money than she does? Why is his salary not a tax burden? Herein lies the problem with how we talk about women working, especially women in a partnership or marriage. It's built on an unfair and inequitable premise, ignoring the fact that both adults are in the family creation enterprise together. Wouldn't a better way to look at the partnership a more fair and equitable way to look at this and make a decision B, to look at what the couple makes together and say, okay, together we're making $130,000 a year and the nanny will cost $30,000. So when we deduct $30,000 from that $130,000 total salary that we're bringing in, we'll still have $100,000 left over, less taxes after we pay the nanny. I'm sure you'd say, hell yeah, it's worth it. Of course we should work. It's a different way to look at things, a different conversation, but one that needs to happen more often if we want to see women, ambitious women, creating, advancing, and reaping the rewards of work outside the home. Now, there's no problem with or fault or flaw with choosing to stay home if that is what you want to do, but it's important to make that choice because it is what you want to do and not because it's not worth it for you to work because you make less money. There is no reason we should look at or default to childcare as a woman's responsibility, nor should we isolate women's bonus money or extra stretch projects that they make money on as a tax burden. But when we have conversations where right out of the gate, we start with, well, how much would you have to make for it to be worth it for us to have a nanny? Or how much will we have to pay in tax burden if you follow your passion projects? We've already shifted the dynamic in a really negative way that can have long-term consequences. And honestly, for me, what I find even more offensive to the economics argument is the idea that all we lose when we don't work is pay. What about purpose and the pursuit of our passions? What about the contributions we can make to our world through our work? I'm in no way knocking a couple's decision to have one person stay home with children, male or female, but let's start the conversation from a fair and real place. Let's not always assume that men who work and have kids can be great parents and enjoy the accolades of success and purpose in their work and their contributions, but women can't because that just isn't true. 
Women in the workforce is not a choice. It's a reality for most families. And we have to start having more fair and honest conversations about what we sacrifice when we don't work outside the home and what we gain when we do personally and as a society. And that is far more than a pile of pay stubs and certainly more than an additional tax burden. We also need to be proactive in our thinking and our discussions of ways we can minimize the loss of professional capital that women incur if we do take a temporary break from the workforce. We need to think about and prepare for the loss of purpose that can be felt, how difficult it then can be to on-ramp back into the workforce at a level that is appropriate for our talent level. We have to be mindful of all of these complexities, and we have to be mindful of the subtle ways, even perhaps the unconscious ways we We often talk as a society about women's work contributions. We need to challenge language that is oversimplified and can, over time, erode or minimize women's workforce contributions. We have to dissect the ways, even on a micro level, that we think about women's crucial role in the workforce. And that means thinking about, culturally, how we can continue to challenge and interrupt distasteful cultural norms and social messages that, as women, much of our value is tied to motherhood, that without children, we're not as valued or whole, and that our work is somehow therefore less meaningful or important, that we are not doing important work unless it's parenting and motherhood, because fathers, again, are allowed and expected to have meaningful relationships with their children and be good dads, but also have meaningful work contributions. And we might not think that the subtle language and the way we think about this can have an impact, but it can. Research shows that it can. A recent Harvard study found that high-achieving women are not meeting the career goals they set out for themselves in their 20s, not necessarily because they're opting out of the workforce when they have kids, but because they're allowing their partner's careers to take precedence over their careers. And this prioritizing the male partner's career has been found in many research studies. I conducted a research study of women in the Fortune 500, and they similarly expressed that it is very likely that in a career with two ambitious people trying to advance, when that career requires a lot of commitment, that one of the two will be expected to subordinate. And too often, that person expected to subordinate is the woman. So we have to be mindful of this. When we talk about men's workforce contributions is essential, but then hem and haw about whether or not women even need to work, we undermine women who are in the ascent, trying to advance and thrive. And small comments like these ones, the suggestion that working is a choice for women, perpetuates that men's careers and career success is more important even in the mindset of high potential women and men. In that Harvard study I just mentioned, the research interviewed thousands of men and women who graduated from Harvard Business School. And more than half of the male Harvard Business School graduates said they expected their careers would take precedence over their partners. Whereas less than 10% of the female Harvard Business graduates said they expected their careers to take precedence. So this isn't about the person who went to Harvard expects their career to take precedence. This is about the males who graduate from Harvard expecting their careers to take precedence while females who graduate from Harvard do not. And this is the consequence of the small and large ways that we make it seem as though women's careers are less important. 
So we have work to do, warriors. Big issues, yes, but they are often perpetuated by small actions, word choices that marginalize or minimize. There is nothing Nothing wrong with conversations around the importance of the role of mother and staying at home. And we can talk about the value of choice, certainly, for those privileged enough to even have that option. But we should always talk about the value of women in the workforce and women's contributions in the workforce. And so my manifest statement for this week is this. Women's workforce contributions are necessary and valuable. As Chun Wei, lead anchor for international broadcast in China and host of World Insight, so perfectly said, quote, any society that fails to harness the energy and creativity of its women is at a huge disadvantage in the modern world. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at advancingwomenpodcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo, and thanks to all of you for joining me here today.